A few minutes ago, Madeline read to us from the fourth book in the Bible. And I've just got to say, Madeline, you pronounced all those names just like you knew what you were doing. So whether you did or you just did it with confidence, that's impressive. I'm sure there were multiple people thankful they weren't reading that passage this morning. As interesting as the names were, um, the story, it's fascinating. The people of Israel, they're wandering through the desert on their way to the land that God had promised them. The leader of Israel, his name was Moses. He sent spies into this land. It was called Canaan. And the job of these spies was to check it out and to bring back a report. And, um, well, it, it ends up being one of those leadership moments that looks like a good idea on the front end, but um, kind of blows up in your face. It, it was a disaster. Ten of the spies out of the 12 came back shaking in their boots, convincing the group to not do what God had told them to do, what they were planning to do, what they should have done, what they needed to do. Um, they just convinced them, don't do this. This is crazy, they said. These, this, the people that live here, they're huge. I mean, they're, they're swole up like Aubrey or maybe CJ. And um, they've got cities that are fortified. And that, that's a big deal because, remember, they were slaves and they were nomads. They didn't exactly have siege engines with them, right? How do you build the material it takes to attack a walled city when you're in a desert, right? So they were entirely unprepared. We feel like grasshoppers, they said. There's no way we can do this. Now, two of the spies, Caleb and Joshua, they saw it differently. They said, no, 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 no. We can do this because God told us to do it and Whatever God asks you to do, he always equips you for. We can do this. We've got this. God is on our side and they are big, but God is so much bigger. And their walls are tall and tough, but God who created all things is not threatened by walls. He can handle this. We can do this. Um, so in one of the first recorded acts of democracy, the people took a vote and um, they decided, nope, not going to do it. They, they did not, they refused to listen to Caleb and Joshua. They said, no way. And it's, it's one of those really sad moments in the drama of scripture. Because you, if you're reading the Bible like a novel, which is the way you should read it. If you've been reading it from the beginning, you, you're in on the secret. God made everything. God's tough. God's delivered them from Exodus. You've seen God do amazing things on behalf of these people. And so it's like you're watching a movie where the person's about to go into the scary room and the bad music's playing and the killer is right behind the door, right? You're watching this and you're like, no, no. If you had hair, you're pulling on it. It's just, it's just troublesome. But I want to draw your attention to a very interesting moment right in the middle of this story. While they're sneaking through the land, they come to a dry stream bed where grapes are growing. Huge grapes. So heavy that a branch with a single cluster takes two dudes. Now, granted, these are wimps. We already know that from the rest of the story, right? These are, I don't know, maybe they were vertically challenged or something. But it takes two of them to carry it. So they name that place. Um, translated into English, cluster brook. They're speaking Hebrew. In their language, it's wadi eshkol. Translated cluster brook. 
So these spies, when they come back to the people of Israel, they bring some pomegranates and some figs and this remarkable cluster of grapes. And unfortunately, even this mind-boggling, tantalizing promise from the promised land can't convince them. So as the story gets told, this little strange little passage, it gets picked up. It gets picked up throughout the Old Testament. In fact, some of you who grew up in church, what's a phrase for the promised land that's evoking this story? Anybody know? Milk and honey, that's right. It's picking up off this amazing, fecund, fruitful place. Now, this cluster of grapes in the Old Testament becomes a symbol. A symbol of hope. One that Israel would, would, would get out of this. One day Israel is going to get out of the desert. They're going to get out of a dry and barren land. And they're going to live in the promised land. Where there's going to be enough clusters of grapes. That everybody gets some. You see, this, this kind of cluster of grape that they bring back from the promised land. Can you imagine people looking at this in a desert? Can you see what it becomes, comes to symbolize? That there is this place where there's food. There is this place where grapes grow. Now, hold that story in your imagination. And let's jump forward in the drama of Scripture, to Luke chapter 24. If you have your Bible, look at Luke chapter 24, this passage that I just read a few minutes ago. There's a couple, Cleopas, and in Luke's gospel, we're not given the name of the other person. Two people, like the nation of Israel. They're living in barrenness. They're scared. All their hopes have been shattered. They're full of unanswered questions. They're devastated because Jesus had been the bearer of their hopes. And now he's dead. And he's gone. Jesus, they thought, had, was the one that was going to redeem Israel. He should have defeated Rome. Not died at the hands of Rome. Like it says in verse 20, they crucified him, Cleopas said. But we had hoped that he would be the one to redeem Israel. The irony is the, the, the third person that's joined them as they're walking down this road is actually Jesus. Incognito. Cleopas and this other person, they don't recognize him. And he takes their confusion. He takes their devastation. And he talks to them. But what does he talk to them about? In their confusion, in their devastation, in their sadness. He tells them the story of the Bible. Now that's an interesting counseling move. He tells them the story of the Bible and how this story is the key 
to them losing their disappointment and gaining hope. He says to them, they've been reading the story, the Bible story, all wrong. They've been seeing it as the long story of how God is going to redeem Israel from suffering. But instead, they need to start over and read the whole thing again as the way God is going to redeem Israel through suffering. And that one preposition has screwed them up. That one way of looking at this has caused them to read the whole thing wrong so that they missed it. They needed to learn to read this Bible story as a long story of God redeeming Israel through suffering. And in particular, that God was going to take on to himself Israel's suffering. And so when it says in verse 27, beginning with Moses and the prophets, that's just another way of saying starting at the beginning. Beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Now, don't think of this as Jesus taking a few isolated passages of scripture and show how in some magical way they prophesy Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. That is not what this means. What we see in Luke 24, 27 is that Jesus is showing how the whole story is pointing to him. That's different. Remember I said earlier, we've got to learn to read the Bible as a novel. In other words, Jesus showed them how the plot was moving toward him. That's different than scratching around and trying to find something red and saying, oh, that must stand for blood and trying to find any perpendicular pieces of wood and saying, oh, that must define the cross. No, Jesus is saying, look, this thing is a story and it's a story looking for the ending. And the only ending that makes sense of this story is me and the cross and the resurrection. Jesus showed this couple how the whole story was pointing To him. And when you read it that way, when you read it as a narrative, as a narrative arc, you notice that this is a story about God delivering through suffering. And the amazing, befuddling mystery of it all is that you began to notice, when you look back at the Bible through the cross, you began to notice all along. There was this mysterious thread that it's not only about deliverance through suffering, but it's about God himself taking on the suffering. And eventually there is Jesus, God himself in the flesh, taking Israel's suffering. And Israel in the Bible is representative of the whole of the world. So by taking Israel's suffering, suffering at the hands of the Romans, Injustice at the hands of the Romans. By taking Israel's suffering, he is taking the suffering of the world onto himself and shock of all shocks. Dies under the weight of it and then rises again as the beginning of God's new creation. And then we get to verse 28. It's getting dark. The darkness outside is growing to match the darkness that this couple is living in. 
Remember, their eyes could not recognize him. So there's this beautiful kind of literary imagery going on that they're blind. And, and, and the whole environment is now darkening and all are in blindness. And Jesus, whom they still don't recognize, because the darkness is just not in the sky, it's in their, their own minds. Jesus is displaying the body language of someone who's going to keep walking while this couple heads into their house. And they urge him to be their guest. And then something very strange happens. He joins them. But he doesn't act like the guest. He starts acting like the host. He takes the bread. He breaks the bread. He blesses it. He gives it to them. And now look at verse 31. And their eyes were opened. And they recognized him. It's Jesus. He is alive again. But he isn't just alive again in the same way that Lazarus is alive again, whom Jesus raised from the dead. He isn't alive again in the same way that somebody who dies on the operating table and is resuscitated is alive again. No, he has gone through death and out the other side into a new world, a world of new and deathless physicality. Still physical, but somehow transformed. New creation in his body has begun. This new way of material matter existing has begun in the material matter of Jesus' body. There's a new type of creation now walking around this earth. You see, all those who have been resuscitated, they still have to face death again. They've still got corruptible bodies, they're still facing the fact that their body is breaking down. But suddenly in Jesus, we have the first piece of creation in an entirely new way that's not only physical, but it's physical that doesn't decay. So you've got this couple eating a meal and as a result of this meal, their eyes are open to see that thing I just now tried to describe that's, whole, that's so mind-boggling, right? It's, 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 I, I, can't, I can't imagine. What does it mean that physical matter doesn't decay? Like wrapping your mind around that, right? And not only wrapping your mind around the fact that somebody who was dead is now alive again, that's hard enough to believe. But believing all this other stuff, this kind of physics that's going on, this is mind-boggling. Believing that death is no longer king, Believing that decay is no longer a thing we will ever live with again. Their eyes suddenly see that. This is a story. That the way Luke tells it. Reminds us of another meal. Where eyes were opened. After the eating. Another couple. Ate a meal. And the way the Bible tells the story, after eating, their eyes were opened. Does anybody know this other story? Adam and Eve. Genesis chapter 3. The first meal recorded in creation. 
It's funny. In Genesis chapter 1, God gives humans two jobs. Fill up the world, subdue it, have sovereignty over it, and eat it. All of the world, a gift to humans. That their hunger for eating is a gift that God satisfies. And then the first time they eat, they take that God-given hunger. And instead of taking the God gifts, they pick the one that he said, don't eat. And the first meal of the Bible. It's so heavy with significance. We've been told, fill up this world, subdue it, have dominion over it, and you get to eat, you get to feast. And we can't wait for the first meal. And then the first meal is wicked rebellion. And it says in Genesis 3, the woman took the fruit. And gave the fruit. Same verbs. And after they ate, verse 7, the eyes of both of them were opened. Luke is telling the story of the two people walking down the road to Emmaus using all of that same language. He's using the story of the Bible to help you understand the story of the Bible. This is a story, Adam and Eve, that had been told over and over as the beginning of the woes that had come upon the human race. Death itself is traced to that moment of rebellion. The whole creation was subjected to decay and futility and sorrow in that moment. Now, Luke, in Luke chapter 24, echoing that story, describes another meal. Again, the first meal. Of a creative moment. The first meal of new creation. He tells in the same way. There's a couple. By the way in John's gospel. Cleopas is at the foot of the cross. With his wife Mary. Luke wants you to know all this. He wants. He, I think he blanked out the name of the other person. So that maybe you would say. What if that was me? So that maybe you would scratch around and discover, oh, this is another husband and wife. When was another husband and wife eating a meal? He's echoing all of that. He tells about Jesus, takes the bread, blessed it, broke it, gave it to them. You see, Adam and Eve, when they took, they didn't bless. So here is Jesus. This is not Adam and Eve. This is Cleopas and perhaps his wife Mary. And they are hungry. They are hungry for everything sad to come untrue. Aren't you? I mean, did any of you have any experience this week that if you could trade it in, you would? Or any of you face or any of you walking down the road like Cleopas and and this other if, if somebody stopped you and asked you and really, really asked you, what are you thinking about now? What are you what's going on? Would you also stand there looking sad? I would. Hungry they are for God to rescue them. Human history begins in hunger. And hunger, whether it's for bread or land or glory or God, motivates so much of our history. The Bible begins by presenting to us humans as hungry creatures and we shatter the world 
through our insatiable hungers. The Bible begins with the first act of creation being the gift of hunger and the gift of satisfaction that is then perverted through an illicit meal and the first act of new creation at the climax of the story of the Bible is God himself offering himself the fruit of a different tree. The tree of the cross. God himself is not only the host, he is the meal for the healing of the world. Luke is telling this resurrection story in a particular way. He's inviting you and me to listen to Scripture like these two people on the road, to have our hearts burn within us as fresh truth comes to us from these old pages. He's reminding us that careful study of the Bible is meant to bring head and heart together. They heard the Bible taught, their hearts burned. They saw something new. They saw something true. Their hearts burned. You see, we need to get out. We've got to learn to read the Bible by descending into our hearts, not checking our brains at the door, but not living in the cold, sterile sterility of objective readings, but learning to read this book as a whole, as one huge, complicated, but very powerful story, all pointing to Jesus. This is what will happen when we learn to think through the story of God and the world and of Israel and Jesus, and only when we learn to understand the Bible as the story of God creating a new world. And there's all these hints. At the beginning of creation, there's a meal that breaks it. At the climactic moment, there's a new meal. And, not, and in between taking and giving, there's a blessing of the fruit, a healing of the fruit. And it's by one who was hanging on a tree, which we call a piece of fruit. You're supposed to put all of these pieces together. And only when we learn to do that, only then will we find our hearts burning within us like Cleopas and Mary. But there's more, isn't there? Luke is also inviting us not only to slot in there next to Cleopas and to walk down the road and to hear scripture explained in this way. He's also inviting us to see Jesus in the breaking of the bread. Not in the scripture. But in the breaking of the bread, when the scripture has been taught. The way Luke has described this simple mealtime reminds us of the central action of God's people, the Eucharist. In fact, the passages that Dan read to us, when Paul talks about Eucharist, communion, um, uh, the Lord's Supper, Mass, whatever you call it. When Paul is describing that, you know what verbs he uses? Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Verse 24, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body. In the same way, he took the cup after supper saying, this is my covenant. He uses the same verbs. He took, he broke, he blessed, he gave. Every time we take communion, we are remembering what Jesus did. 1 Corinthians eleven twenty six. As often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. But it's not just memory. We're not just coming to this table to remember 
That's 1 Corinthians 11. We've also got 1 Corinthians chapter 10. And look, I dare you, at verse 16. <laughs> I'm 15. I speak as to sensible people. I'm not about to go crazy in what I'm about to say. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Look, Paul started this church. And for Sunday after Sunday, for a long time, after they would read scripture together, he would get a piece of bread and quote those words on the night that our Lord was handed over to suffering and death. He took the bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it. And, and, and in chapter 11, he says, look, every time I do that, every time I break this bread, we remember that God's, Jesus' body was broken. And, and every time I, I take this cup, we remember that Jesus' blood came out and he told us that that was for the healing of the world. But here in chapter 10, he says, every time we break and eat this bread, not only are we remembering, but he says very clearly, you don't have to have a PhD in theology. What does he say? He says in chapter 11, whenever we do this, we remember. And he says in chapter 10, whenever we do this, we what? We participate. If you can believe chapter 11, why can't you believe chapter 10? Every time we do this, we participate. It's actually in Greek, the word koinonia. If you've been around the church very long, it's quite a a ubiquitous word. We koinonia, we actually fellowship. In what? In the body of Christ. In the blood of Christ. All right. Let me try to bring all this together. Remember Madeline's remarkable reading. Numbers chapter 13. Remember the grapes. That's Jesus. He's come to us from the promised land. It's hard to believe, isn't it? See, I think a lot of us, we're like the 10. We're like Israel. Can't believe it. Too good to be true. Here's Jesus. He's, he's from the promised land. He's from this place God promises us. He's from new creation. He's an actual artifact of it. He's an actual example of it. He's been harvested from it. And he's right here with us. In the resurrection, Jesus, he's the grapes. Here we are in our barren land, living with bodies that are dying and marriages that are falling apart and our own minds are, are, are messing with us in our friendship. And there's all this darkness and all this barrenness and all this wilderness around us. And here's the resurrected Jesus, new body that won't break down, filled with love and compassion and with everything we long for in our deepest dreams and our deepest imaginations. And he's been resurrected and he's here. Some people think of the Christian's promised land as heaven. No, it's not heaven. The land God promises us, Paul says very clearly, the whole Bible says it. Paul gets right at it in, chapter, in Romans chapter 8. The land that God promises us is this earth renewed. The whole earth is the promised land. 
All of creation, those of you who memorized part of Romans 8, all of creation is doing what? Groaning, waiting for the day that the sons of God will be revealed. This whole earth is the promised land. If we die before the return of Christ, we go to heaven. In other words, we'll go into God's dimension. But the real hope is that everyone in heaven and those of us on earth who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ will be transformed and re-embodied to join in the new life of the renewed earth. Jesus is the grapes. That's why in that interesting story, they make such a big deal out of that right in the middle of it. Every longing of our hearts will be satisfied. Alan and his cancer. Cancer may have the last word in the future here. But it will not have the last word. Alan will be resurrected with a body cancer-free. And you will be resurrected with a body that is free from decay. With minds that don't turn against you and drive you because of some chemical imbalance into a darkness of depression. You'll be resurrected with a way of talking that doesn't sabotage your relationships. You'll be resurrected with desires that don't turn the whole world into an illicit feast for your own selfish pleasures. You'll be resurrected free. Free from all of that. Every longing of your heart nourished and satisfied by the presence of grapes that are so big. Two of you couldn't carry them. If that is our promised land, what are the grapes which the spies bring back? They are the food and the drink we eat every Sunday at this table. This meal, these are the grapes of Eshkol. The food from Clusterbrook. It tells us. We get to eat grapes in the wilderness. That's what we do every Sunday. We come to this warrior's banquet table. Tired. Defeated. Exhausted. Not knowing if we can make it the next week. And we get grapes in the desert. We get Christ himself feeding us himself with what? His body and his blood. That's what it says in 1 Corinthians 10. Every time we do this, we get the body. We get the blood of Jesus. This is the food which will assure us that we're on the right road. When we come to this table, we can know, yes, God who began a good work in me, he's going to finish it. And now he feeds me with his own life, the life of his own son. He's going to bring this work to completion when all things are made new. And we stand at last in the presence of Jesus himself. This meal that we eat every Sunday. Luke told the story of Luke 24 using all the language of all those special meals pushing forward. Paul then picks it up. And says, this is what we do in worship. All of this is us tapping into that. This meal is designed by the Father. It is designed by the Son. It is designed by the Holy Spirit to give us a taste of the things to come. Fresh grapes from the land of promise for those of us who are wandering in dusty deserts. In John's gospel, what is the first miracle 
Jesus does. Does anybody know? What's that, Esther? That's right, it's a wedding. If you have your Bible, turn to John chapter 2. John chapter 2, on the third day, (laughs) there was a wedding. Now, do you think that's an accident? Do you think it was an accident of history or an accident of John the literary artist? No, neither. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. And Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, it's an awful thing, right? Uh, This Christmas, we um, invited some folks over for Christmas. Uh, The Coopers um, came over. Who else was there? Were were the Lamonts there? That's right. And my family and um, a few other people. And... uh, I had, um, I was withdrawing from some weird drug. What was the name of that drug? I, John, you don't remember? I was, I had, I had, had back, I've got disc issues and I'd been taking some narcotic and, uh, and I, I was taking the maximum dosage and I ran out and I just stopped cold turkey and I entered into this not fun place. And I call, and we had ordered a standing prime rib from Martin's and we were going to cook it on Christmas day for everybody. And in my deliriousness, I told Janelle, I ordered way too much and uh, cut the order in half. Well, when we picked up the order, then after having made that fateful decision, it was like, it was like, I don't know, four ounces of meat or something. It was just, it was ridiculous. And I totally freaked out and, and we had not nearly enough. And I was so embarrassed. And so, have you ever had a party where you ran out? Of food or drink. I mean, this is bad news. They ran out of wine at a party they were hosting. So when the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they don't have any wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does that have to do with me? And um, my hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, just do whatever he tells you. Now, there were six stone water jars for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and, and take, take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn it out, they knew. The master of the feast called the bridegroom and said, holy cow. This is unorthodox. Um, in our culture, you know this, everybody knows this, everyone serves the good wine first. I think the idea is that the longer people drink, the less discriminating they get. <laughs> everybody serves, actually, it's more than that, I'll tell you in a minute. Everybody serves a good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you've kept the best to the end. Just like with uh, Cleopas and that other person on the road to Emmaus, where Jesus goes into the home as a guest and then does a judo move on the tradition and the guest becomes the host. Jesus turns the tradition of serving the best first on its head. You see, the ancient world was convinced that new stuff was always worse than old stuff. It's the opposite of our culture. The ancient world believed that the latter was always a diminishing copy a supplement, always a degeneration from the origin. But Jesus reversed that. Ancient people, they they believed that the golden age was past. Like some 
political party in America today. Perhaps never to be recovered. And Jesus is proclaiming the best is yet to come. The ancient world believed that a woman was a defective man because she was made after, from him, out of him. Scripture teaches that the woman who comes second is the glory of the man. The ancient world served the best wine first. Jesus serves the better at the end. Weddings are a joy. But as joyful as a wedding is by comparison with what is to come, the best party you have ever been to, the best moment you have ever experienced, you're on vacation, everything is just right. You've had a great meal with great friends in a beautiful place. And in that moment, you have that ephemeral experience of, ah, it doesn't get any better than this. It does. My kids ask me, what will it be like in the new heavens and new earth? I say, what's the best thing, you know, you've ever experienced even better. Weddings are joy, but as joyful as weddings are, by comparison with what is to come, the greatest joy on the greatest day of the greatest marriage is only water compared to the well-aged wine that is to come. So we come to the table this morning for a feast, believing that the best wine comes at the end. 2,000 years ago, something happened by which death itself was defeated and God's creative and gracious and merciful power like a reverse nuclear bomb. This life-giving power was unleashed and God's new creation began with the bang of Jesus' resurrected body. And in the resurrection of Jesus, God has started something. He has begun to fix the world and he started it with the broken matter of Jesus' body. And one day, when Jesus returns, this resurrection that Jesus experienced, this will happen to you and to this valley and to the Rocky Mountains and to education and to medical care and to justice systems and to governments and to art and to every square inch of nature and culture. Resurrection. The resurrection of Jesus is the prototype of this whole world. All of it in its nature and culture being renewed from top to bottom. So that everything that is pure and lovely and beautiful and noble and wise will, in the words of Hopkins, shine out like shook foil. The best is yet to come. Let's pray.